0: Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of the Diz Unplug Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling. I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing good, Michael. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, thank you. You know, you sound very clear coming from the being first in line for
1: that cats film that's coming out this Yikes. December. <laughs> mm, yeah, I don't, I don't think that was me. And maybe you got your lines <laughs> crossed on that. Uh, I, I can promise you, I will probably see it uh, just out of like sheer, sheer wonderment. Like it's, yeah. You know, it, it's like watching a car wreck happen. And oh, that, you just don't want to look, but you have to.
0: That was quite something, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> just really, like, I don't want to take away from the people who have clearly worked very, very hard on, on this movie and, and such, you know, it's, it, they, they have a, a task to bring a, a musical to life and they decided on the methods that they decided on. Uh, it just, it looks terrifying as all <laughs> but I get out, but I don't know if I could do much better, so I'm not going to knock him.
0: Yeah, it was it was amazing. Yeah, so um, yeah, yeah, it, and what's interesting is is that you know th- that film was considered over the years many many times to be. Um, You know to be animated, but T.S. Eliot did not want his little Jellicoe cats turned into a Disney film. He didn't want them cute and all that. So, uh, so you know, so Disney, you know, made the Aristocats instead. But, but the interesting thing was is that Steven Spielberg had a a version of it that he was sort of working on um, an animated version of Cats and it was going to be set during the Blitz in London from 1940 to 41 and there's some beautiful uh, you know um, like storyboard art and concept art from that that's out there on the internet and all that and and it looks interesting and I thought yeah you know I think this would have worked uh, as an animated film. But it, this was in the late 90s, and it got canceled, so... i
1: hmm. yeah. Anyway. I'm actually, I just looked it up right now. So I yeah. had to... You piqued my interest immediately on it, and it is beautiful artwork. Uh, Isn't it? Yeah. No, it, it really is. Um, the, the Steven Spielberg stuff, it's pretty stunning. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm impressed. I know I'm not uh, describing it visually, but I will... Uh, I'll add a link to it in the show notes. Okay, because it's it's worth looking at, even though it has nothing to do with anything we're talking about today. Uh,
0: no, well, animation. Fun. We are talking about animation today. Yeah, that is but true. I, I but I just when I saw that, I just thought at some point didn't somebody say, you know, this doesn't this doesn't seem like a really good idea. Yeah, <laughs> you know,
1: but, huh? but anyway. and I mean it comes full circle because. Uh, it's, you know, Steven Spielberg is still technically involved in, in this Cats movie as well, too. So, uh, so he's finally getting Cats off the ground.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's probably thinking what could have been.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I don't know if yeah. he's doing anything firsthand, but I know Amblin uh, Entertainment is one of the production companies, and, mm. and uh, Universal is... The, the studio distributing it so uh, all we can do is thank goodness that uh, thank goodness that it has nothing to do with 20th Century Fox otherwise <laughs> Disney would have their name on
0: oh my gosh they'd be in um, Animal Kingdom or someplace <sighs> like that crawling around
1: let's let's <laughs> not take it there no one needs that
0: <laughs> well, well.
1: oh this past weekend i had great
0: fun i was at the lassiter family winery and i went to their lobster boil I've, that was for members i'd never been to a lobster boil. have you ever been to a lobster boil
1: i have it's been a long time though since my wife is uh, allergic to shellfish so oh, yes. uh, she cannot partake in anything like that. But uh, I saw I saw your photos of it. Yeah, it's just you know a ton of seafood spread out, and you're you're eating disgusting.
0: It, it, yeah, you are because they boil everything and then they just pour it out without the water. Uh-huh. Just down the row, just down the center of you know picnic style tables, family style tables, and there's lobster, shrimp, potatoes, artichokes. Um, Oh gosh, corn on the cob, and and um, they had roasted garlic in there because they also had sourdough bread, and I mean there was all kinds of stuff. And you're right, the only utensil you have is your lobster cracker, you know. And and then and they'd had had cheese and a charcuterie, um, you know, spread before that, and then anyway, so it was it was a lot of fun. I don't know if I'd do it again, but we had. We had a lot of listeners there, a number of listeners, and then there were some friends and all that who were there. So, yeah, so that was – but I enjoyed it. So, And, of course, there was wine, um, Lasseter wine.
1: Yeah, I would hope that that would be there at the very yeah. least. But
0: Yeah, so anyway, so it was cool. So if you ever have a chance to go to a lobster boil and you're not allergic to shellfish, I would say go at least once. Uh, part of me is I just don't like to work that hard for my food. You know, <laughs> and it—I I, finally somebody showed me how to crack some of it. And that yeah,
1: it but it, it is still difficult. Even even when you have it down, it's like an art form. It it still does take a little bit.
0: Mhm it does it does a lot <laughs> so and um folks might remember a couple weeks ago we talked about our appearance talking about star tours on the disney edition um or disney discussion podcast with our friends tony sparrow and stitch and they had part 1 um, a couple weeks ago that we were a part of, along with other folks in the Disney um, podcast community. And this week is part, well, it's episode 44, and it's part two of their series, where they talk about the history of Star Tours and Star Wars in the Disney parks. And we're back on there again because uh, Tony did a masterful job of, of taking our, our you know, what we submitted, and he's broken it up along with everybody else's and re-edited it into you know different segments. So, Craig, I think all all your work with our sound effects is on the cutting room floor. <laughs>
1: uh, well, oh, it happened. As someone who does this for a living, I understand that that happens
0: yeah. a lot. Yeah, but but we but if we're invited back again, we know. But it anyway, it's I listened to it this morning. It's a lot of fun. And uh, so, so I'd say check it out, DisneyDiscussions.com, dot com, and especially you're going to hear about Star Tours, and and um, and anyway, so and we're on there too, and we'll have a link in our show notes to that episode. And finally, this weekend I'll be at the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet up in North Linwood, Washington, near somewhere near Seattle. And so I know there's a number of listeners that are going to be up there because they've been saying they're going to wear their Connecting with Walt shirt. So I'll wear mine. Maybe we can have a group photo on one of these um, you know, days because they, it starts Friday. There's a D23 members event that I was able to get a ticket for. And then the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet also has an event in that evening, sort of, a, I guess, like an icebreaker welcome kind of thing and then they have the whole lineup of events on Saturday and then and I talked about that a couple of weeks ago and then they added an event for Sunday a ticketed event um where with Joe Rodi um talking about um building the Alani Resort
1: so oh, that's a shame I thought he was only going to talk about Guardians
0: oh yes or or um yeah yeah, Guardians or, or Avatar but no it's going to be about Alani which should be fascinating so anyway so I hope to see you there but we'll definitely be talking about it on the show so um, coming up so if you weren't if you're not able to go you'll be able to go with us when we talk about it next week well, as part of our celebration of Mickey Mouse's 90th anniversary, Craig and I have been running a series on the life and career of Mickey Mouse, which is a part of our larger series on Walt Disney's animated films. So as part of our celebration, we invited Disney animator and Disney legend Andreas Deja on the show to talk about how he became an artist, joined the Walt Disney studio as an animator, and becoming the guest curator of the exhibition currently running at the Walt Disney Family Museum, Mickey Mouse from Walt to the World. On our previous episode, Andreas talked about his boyhood, his passion for drawing, his path to becoming a Disney animator, and his appreciation for Mickey Mouse and all the artists who created him. So, So if you have not listened to that previous episode, I suggest you pause here and go back and and listen to last week's episode. Um, We left off with Andres taking us through the highlights of what you can see in the exhibition, and we're going to continue our conversation with Andres this week, starting with the band concert and Mickey's transition to the world of color. And then I ha- we have what you called the Wizard of Oz moment. We turn the corner and we enter the world of color with the band concert in Gallery 2. And there's a, and there's a full cell from the band concert, which again, it, it's just such a remarkable work of art. And, and this is where like the backgrounds and, and, and animation cells and all that really became works of art unto themselves.
2: Yeah, I think I think uh, visitors will get a whole new appreciation for the art form because um, it's one thing to, to see the film with Mickey moving around and acting and all that, but when you look at the artwork and you see what's involved and you find out about the process that somebody had to draw this frame by frame by frame on paper first, then you have inkers, you know, who take a a cell and they put that over the drawing and they ink it very, very carefully. And then they had painters who had to paint this on, on the other side of the cell. I mean, again, frame after frame after frame, thousands and thousands and thousands of these. It's kind of, when you think about it, it's it's kind of crazy. You have to be beyond driven to want to do this kind of work, but they were because the end result was so beautiful. And of course uh, um, they were very su- successful at the, at the box office.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is also the era where Mickey becomes part of the ensemble with Donald Duck and Goofy. And, it, and it, I guess a decision was made that the the storytelling would be stronger with with the trio rather than Mickey sort of being uh, the star, the standalone star.
2: Right. And they continue with a few of those. Uh, Fantasia, of course, he was uh, mm-hmm. the single star. The Sorcerer's apprentice. But um the story team and Walt soon found out that when you have those more or less eccentric characters working with each other, uh, the situations become really juicy and animatable, you know, and that the conflict is easier to show and comedy than as if you just have Mickey alone. So there are these wonderful shorts like Lonesome Ghosts and Clock Cleaners, you know, where you have Mickey and donald who's always eccentric and loses his temper and goofy who's so slow to to figure things out (laughs) but good 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 natured at the same time and uh it's i mean those three work together so well that they decided yeah let's just keep them together for a whole uh, series of new shorts
0: Mm -hmm. and I know that there's a lot of artwork from the Brave Little Taylor in this gallery, and this cartoon short is your particular favorite because this is sort of a, a turning point you said in the animation and design of Mickey can you can you tell our listeners why? yeah, absolutely
2: um, there is this opening sequence uh, where Mickey Mouse uh, as the Brave Little Taylor is being presented to the King and and the Princess Minnie, and um, he is describing how he beat seven in one blow. Of course, he's talking about flies, but everybody, since the, the topic had been talking about giants, everybody thinks he beat seven giants, and there for the first time during that section, as he explaining what he had just done and he's proud of himself, uh, that kind of acting is something that only Frank Thomas could do because Frank Thomas was somebody, he was an animator who internalized a character and really thought about the feeling and the nuanced emotions of the characters first and then animated that. But he figured all this stuff out. And and prior to that, uh, he he really hadn't seen anything that was so refined in terms of the acting and timing. I mean, he would do funny things. He would jump up and down and he would solve problems and all that kind of stuff. But this was like, uh, Lawrence Olivier acting, I want to say, you know, Mm -hmm. Mickey really is like a fine actor in that sequence. So that's, that's why to me it was groundbreaking. Also the, the model in that, even though he still has his dark ovals for, for eyes, he doesn't have pupils yet, but, but still, there's something really appealing about that version of Mickey Mouse. Uh, and, um, yeah, I just, I just think it's a masterpiece.
0: Yeah. You you mentioned how Frank Thomas approached Mickey in drawing the Brave Little Taylor. Did the other nine old men who also, and and Freddie Moore, the others, and uh, did they have different ways of approaching Mickey, sort of a different philosophy in animating him that affected maybe how Mickey appeared on the screen?
2: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I I think drawing-wise just the way he looks on the screen, everybody looked up to Fred Moore because he just had a way of drawing him. You know, Ollie Johnson would always say the man couldn't do a drawing that didn't have the ultimate appeal. Everything Freddie Moore drew had appeal. So they were all wanted and and Walt wanted that. And he would send the animators to Freddie Moore's room and have him go over their their drawings. So they looked like his. So, uh, but in terms of the action and the way he moved, um, uh, that that would differ. Uh, for example, there's a short called The Little Whirlwind. I believe it's from 1942. And if I would read the synopsis of what is happening during that short, there's this little baby whirlwind coming to town, and Mickey is accidentally uh, thrown in, battling this little whirlwind until mama whirlwind comes around, and then things kind of build up. It It sounds kind of strange. You know, it's like, like as, a, as as a written word on on a, on a page, I would not approve the, this kind of a short. But what what they did with it is they brought this whole thing to life in the way Mickey moved. You know, he's as he's chasing the little baby whirlwind, like from from one house corner to the other. His neck would stretch out first, then his feet would catch up, and you're just so entertained by the way he moves and the cleverness and the unusual kind of animation. That that is what really carries the short film, not so much the story
0: itself. And then, and you mentioned Fantasia. This, of course, that's this is my favorite role that Mickey ever had. And... Well, this
2: was the big budget big budget uh, 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 deluxe version of Mickey Mouse. I mean, <laughs> they threw a lot of they threw a lot of money. At that short, but also uh, it got the deluxe treatment in terms of special effects and color and multiplane, and and all of that made made it such an amazing, amazing standout film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just uh, yeah, like an an absolute high in in the career of Mickey Mouse.
0: Yeah, and there's a whole gallery just devoted to Fantasia. So Fantasia lovers, I mean, there's so much different artwork for this film including the original 1940 trailer where I don't know where they dug that up and uh, that's playing in that gallery but what's interesting is is that we you know I, I've always known that Freddie Moore uh, that's where he really sort of defined the Mickey we know now I think was in that film what I didn't realize though because you had talked about this is that Freddie Moore sort of I, I just always assumed he just he animated all of it but you had mentioned that he at this point he was more he was um promoted to a supervisor right
2: mm-hmm. um when i look at the uh draft from the sorcerer's apprentice and that is uh like um a written uh form uh that shows you uh, that lists each scene and who animated what scene how long the scene is and all of that mm-hmm. You, you you won't see the name Fred Moore as an animator in this short, but mm-hmm. he went over just about every scene to make sure that Mickey looks right and, and feels right. So um I have a whole bunch of drawings where he went over Preston Blair, for example, who animated on it or other animators. So he had his hand is all over that film, just not not as an animator. He kind of supervised the look and the action of Mickey
0: Mouse. Yeah, I, I. It's just so exquisite the the his movement and the way you they they were able to animate like the weight of his robes as he you know throws his hands out to magically control the brooms and you see the the weight of the sleeves the long sleeves as they fall over his hands and even the way his um the sorcerer's hat sort of is animated. I mean, it's it's just. I just find everything so beautiful. And it's just, some, I don't know, I, I just get all caught up in it. It's just such a, an amazing sequence.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is uh, really the heart of the animation at Disney. It is, even though Mickey Mouse is a somewhat abstract character, he's not really a mouse. He doesn't really mm-hmm. look that much like like a mouse. He's called mm-hmm. Mickey Mouse. So he's sort of half human, half mouse, half something else. But still, in the way he moves and the clothing and, and the social supremacist people are talking about this heavy coat and all that, it has real weight. It feels like, mm-hmm. yeah, it weighs something, you know, and there's gravity involved. And uh, uh, I think that's what Disney animation is all about, making people believe that this thing really exists.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's why I can just watch this sequence over and over again, and plus it's a great storytelling you know sequence as well and Now there's a gall- and there's a gallery dedicated I think to a part of Mickey's career people don't know a lot about, although I grew up with them the Mickey comic strips and the comic books and I think that went a long way that when you know I'm of the generation where we we had to wait years to see anything from disney in the in in the theaters not like now oh, and we and you would know, catch them every week on television with you know walt's show on sundays but the comic strips and comic books were out all the time and but there must be very different challenges to be a comic strip and a comic book artist when you're transferring an animated character to a static medium like that. The st- and, I mean everything—the drawing and a storytelling method—must be very, very different.
2: Well, um, yes and no. Uh, I mean, you you don't have movement to deal with. Mm-hmm. You're telling Mickey's story in uh, in still form. In still drawings, one sketch after the, the other. Uh, but before you start on the animation for any Mickey Mouse short or any animated film, for that matter, you need to storyboard that story. So the the comic strip is, is sort of a continuation of a storyboard because the storyboard th- does the same thing. It shows scene by scene what's about to happen and they write like, the dialogue underneath, you know, if there's dialogue, and the whole Uh, film, or the whole story evolves over many, many sketches like that. So I I, I think the the comic strip just takes it a step further and presents the film like that, but in a a clean, pristine way. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: No, that's true. They are sort of like little storyboards in many ways. I miss them. I wish they were still around. (laughs) So... Yeah, and then you t- you already mentioned the merchandise gallery. The one thing, though, that I was amazed by is we we did we've done a couple of episodes on Kate Um and one of the things I talked about were, were the de- you know the catalogs that he did for the department stores to promote the merchandise and the merchandise displays that he did for the department stores for the Christmas season. I had never seen one of these. I had no idea how big and elaborate they are, but you have one in there from, I guess, from London. This thing's huge, and apparently it was mechanically um, animated as well. Yeah,
2: parts of this gigantic panel that's about as big as a a wall had movable parts in it that were um, moved... uh, uh, Electrically, you know, some some kind of a way. Um, they don't move right now because uh, we don't have all the, all the parts. But uh, it's just an, it's just amazing of the craftsmanship, even to create something like that in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, but I think um, that any kind of a merchandise such as this or other items that you can actually purchase really helped um, the company to keep going because sometimes a short film would maybe just break even, but it was the merchandise that that brought in the dollars to finance the next project. So it was hugely important for the company to do Mickey Mouse watches and Mickey Mouse toys and Mickey Mouse uh, T-shirts and all of that because uh, it just brought in that extra revenue that they needed in order to keep going.
0: So, yeah, and yeah, and there's a lot of cool stuff. There's this um, French carousel figure of Mickey Mouse in in there. I can't imagine anybody actually rode that, but um, but <laughs> he has been de-
2: depicted in so many ways, depending on which country or which which artist would do Mickey. I mean, all these different versions. Even though, uh, as far as I know, they had access to uh, uh, like so-called model sheets. That show Mickey Mouse how he's to be de- depicted from the front to side and the back and all of that. But still, they brought their own sort of flavor to to the product, and some are quite surreal looking. Some are right up model, you know. So, but it, you get the whole range, you know, of the design versions of Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm
0: yeah yeah it, it anyway that that was a lot of fun and just to let our folks know too there's some great tributes in there too like you have a, you have tributes to various creators of Mickey Mouse, not just the animators um, but you do have there's a tribute to all of the animators in there, including you. there's one of you. there's a little there's one of you in there. and then but also the voice actors, everyone who voiced Walt Disney. I'm I, I, sorry everyone who voiced Mickey Mouse. In there too. And you can listen to them. Mm-hmm.
2: It was kind of important to me, uh, and I talked to the audiovisual team at the museum. I wonder if we can do this, because this, this really hasn't been done. People just see Mickey Mouse, and it seems like the same voice, but we all know it wasn't always the same voice. And maybe we can have uh, like a mini-bio with a photo of the various artists who gave Mickey uh, their voice over the years. And there really weren't that many. There's only a few. But uh, if we can have a piece of audio under each uh, photo, you know, then people can identify and say, "Oh, this is so and so's version. This is William Allwine's version, and then all of that." And I, I think it's kind of fun. They actually pulled it off, you know, at the museum.
0: It is, and it's great to hear all their little subtle differences in the voices. It's it's very cleverly done. So,
2: sometimes the 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 range is a little higher. Sometimes it's a little bit lower, depending on the artist. But uh I mean they're all Mickey Mouse, obviously. Mm-hmm. But there, there are subtle differences. And I think it's fun for people to, to discover this and, and become sort of experts in one way yeah. or the other, you know, about this.
0: Yeah. And then on the second floor of the gallery, the, uh you show how Mickey Mouse has inspired many artists in their own creation. and um there's some beautiful works of art up there. Norman Rockwell, Damien Hurst. Um, Tennessee Loveless.
2: Just a big time artist, you know, I mean, they all grew up with Mickey Mouse, all, all these artists and all Mickey Mouse meant something to all of them. So some of them felt the need to deal with the character and, and do a portrait or do some kind of an idea with a, with a character who was basically a, a childhood friend, you know? So um, yeah, it's, it's amazing how many artists there actually were who interpreted Mickey Mouse their own way. The, I, I really uh, liked seeing the original of the Andy Warhol piece, the big famous Mickey Mouse portraits. And, uh, but you only see it when, when you see it in, in, in real life, so, so to speak, that, that he, he threw some Hollywood sparkle on the, on the background.
0: I, know, I was surprised. Yeah, I never knew that. Yeah. Because when you see it in
2: book reproduced in books, the sparkle isn't there. It's just a photo. You know, But then you, you walk left and right, and you're like, oh my, oh, my God, he gave it the Hollywood treatment. How, how fun is that?
0: That is. That's great. And, and with the light on it, it sparkles really well. So there's also a beautiful mural that Siren Norris, who is well-known for his murals in San Francisco, created for the 10th anniversary of the Walt Disney Family Museum. It's up there titled Generations. And it shows Mickey through the years. And as for you Hidden Mickey fans out there, there's 12 Hidden Mickeys. In it, so you can find those, and there's a really nice tribute to Ivan Earl um, in there as well. So, which is which? I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was Go
2: just, just, just going to say that, that that piece makes it kind of local and connects it to San Francisco because Siron is, is a local artist who, who does a lot of street art, and uh, this is sort of his tribute to Mickey Mouse uh, within the San Francisco context. You know, so I think I I, I think it turned out really really well.
0: Yeah, it did. I wish they sold prints of that. I would give it as always gifts.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So,
0: and then you mentioned that the yeah, other's photos of Mickey Mouse through the years in the theme parks. And then and then it's you you also the exhibition ends with Mickey's return to the big screen and television. But one of my favorites and actually Craig and I have talked about this short and it's it's one you worked on, and you don't see a whole lot of it around. And that's The Runaway Brain in 1995. And we love that. How did that ever come to be? (laughs) Because that is so different from any other Mickey Mouse short.
2: It is different, and it was the most fun Mickey project I ever worked on. Uh, I have to say, um, well, uh, the company at that time, years ago, was thinking again about having a little Mickey Mouse comeback that had done it with Prince and the Pauper, and before that, Mickey's Christmas Carol. And it happened a few years, and so they thought maybe we can do a short, short film, not like a featurette, 20-minute but like a short film. And then it just so turned out that um, Disney Animation annexed a little French studio in uh, on the east side of Paris. Uh, and that studio had worked for Disney TV animation, and they had finished the Goofy movie over in Paris. So all the animation around the Goofy movie was done by French animators. And they, they seemed to be really, really talented. So then Disney feature animation said, well, we could use some of your talent and help on our project. And the first thing we're going to do with you is um, we came out short. So we were also said to do that. But what kind of a short, what kind of story? And I remember we were sitting in meetings and People had ideas about this kind of a storyline, that kind of a story idea. And then out of boredom, one of the story artists just kind of drew a Mickey Mouse sort of doodle as a monster. <laughs> just out of sheer boredom, not even saying anything about the idea. And everybody goes like, mm, what's that? And somebody says, oh, my goodness, we could do some, something based on the Frankenstein story, you know, where this monster comes to light. And then the whole thing starts to take shape and um so that's how this whole thing starts so we we storyboarded that in burbank and then shifted all over to paris france and i moved over there for about three quarters of the year and worked with the french crew uh, to animate this but um it's it turned out to be really really beautiful the animation is gorgeous mm-hmm. uh, the french team they, they were so talented and uh, there wasn't much hand-holding or, or teaching or anything like that because they had, they had done their, their homework and analyzed Mickey Mouse uh, short films and then knew about Mickey so yeah it was just a really really fun project now in the end to be honest with you Disney didn't quite know what to do with that short just the image alone of Mickey as a monster even though he turns into the real Mickey at the end again mm-hmm. but that, that image scared them a little bit so I don't think it was really promoted a whole lot but that being said, it's still one of the best shorts in recent Mickey history. I
0: think. I agree, and I also like the fact that it captured his um, mischievous personality from his early years. That yeah,
2: there's a sort of a spunk that you know him from from those black and white early shorts that, that we that we try to recapture in it.
0: Yeah, and I like that. I like that personality of Mickey. That's I, I get a horse from a few years back, did that as well. And um, and and I, I enjoyed that. So when, when putting this exhibition together, did you discover anything new about Mickey Mouse or those who worked on Mickey's films that you hadn't known before? No, because
2: I had always been interested in the history of Disney animation. And of course, that includes the history of Mickey Mouse. So I had read up, a lot about what animator did what, who drew what and um, uh, yeah so I I kind of knew quite a bit so I had the lucky fortune to actually meet some of the original animators like uh, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston and talk to them about Mickey and how they handled him and uh, I, 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 I actually asked Frank Thomas this I said so when you did the Brave little trailer and that groundbreaking sequence when he's when he's talking to the king and the princess, you know, about what what he had just done, it was a sort of breakthrough in terms of acting. I mean, did Walt call you and tell you that it was fantastic? And he said no, no, it was just another film that we that, that we did, and uh, it, it, it was a good film. He said, and uh, he was proud of it, but but it wasn't something that stood out at the, at the time. I think just just over the decades, you look back on it, and it really does stand out.
0: You know, yes. time. Mm-hmm, yeah. Now Mickey is so closely associated with Walt Disney that Lillian Disney once said that when she sees Mickey Mouse, it reminds her of Walt and how much she misses Walt. Uh, when you draw Mickey, do you sort of feel a connection to Walt? I never met Walt. Um,
2: he died when I was right. nine years old, mm-hmm. I believe. Yes. And um uh so I don't really know the man personally, mm-hmm. but I, um, I, when I when when I draw draw Mickey Mouse, I have a connection to my childhood, and I try to to uh, dive into that enthusiasm, that that sort of devotion to the character that I had when when I was a kid. There's a naivete almost, or a sim- simplicity in the way you uh, admired that character. That's what I'm trying to trying mm-hmm. to dive into. When I'm animating Mickey
0: Good. so so what do you hope people take away when they when they walk out of after seeing the exhibition Mickey Mouse from Walt to the World, What do you hope they come away with?
2: Well, a couple of things. I and mean, first of all, uh, maybe to take away uh, or to 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 leave with a new appreciation for the character and uh, the creation of the character, but but secondly, most importantly, even, what, what really can happen when you have an idea and you pursue it all the way, you get other people excited about your idea and uh, where you can go with that mm-hmm. into the stratosphere in this case, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that might inspire some people to, to follow their ideas slash dreams, you know, and, and work on those and who knows what will happen.
0: Great. Well, yeah, and that, that definitely carries on the legacy of Walt and, and how he felt, too, what his philosophy was.
2: Because he, he was full of ideas. He had them daily, basically, yes. you know, and uh, uh, I guess occasionally was talked out of him, but in most cases uh, they couldn't talk him out of him because uh, when he was starting to talk about having cartoons in color you know, like, like the first Mickey's in color uh, everybody said no you can't do that and uh, the color is going to hurt the eyes of the audience and then he talked about feature films and on and on and on you know, all these inventions and he just, he just had the idea to do this, he wanted to do it and by golly he got it done
0: He did and he knew who, who to put together, who to surround himself with to get the job done so.
2: Well, that was that was part of his genius, that he knew, I want to say, strengths and weaknesses of his staff. And he knew that, um, just to get away from Mickey for a second, but, but by the time they were doing Peter Pan um, and, and they were starting to cast the animators, Walt actually gave the character of Captain Hook to Frank Thomas. Because he felt like Frank's sensibilities and his acting would really work well with Captain Hook but the the animator who really wanted that character and lobbied for Captain Hook was Milt Carr who was uh, uh, of course a top top draftsman and a great animator and uh, uh, he wanted that character so bad but Walt didn't want to give it to him you know and so he Walt knew who would be best for what character and that was part of his uh, genius mm-hmm.
0: absolutely well Well, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Fabrizio Mencinelli recently spoke at the Walt Disney Family Museum about Fantasia, and he mentioned that he's working with you on your current project, Mushka. And is there anything you can share with us about Mushka?
2: Yeah, I can give you a little uh, info. Uh, I, I had a few blog posts about about the project on my blog uh, over the years. Mm-hmm. I can't give too much away, of course, but uh, mm-hmm. um, to, to to answer the question, when are you going to get done with this film? Because it's been a few years. Well, we will definitely finish next year. It'll be a half hour film, so it's not a seven eight minute short. Um, it's a labor of love, and uh, I um, I wanted to keep. Uh, hand-drawn animation alive because that's who I am. That's that's what I do. And um so I dreamt up a little situation that I thought would be fun to draw. because uh, I, I knew I really like drawing animals. So I thought what about big cats? I have some experience with Scar and the Lion King. I could probably build on that experience. Maybe I would do a tiger, a story about a tiger. And how about a little girl? There would be some nice tension there, this mighty tiger and this little girl. And what if she raises him and they they bond? And as he gets older, um, there's trouble because the girl finds out that there are people near them who want to kill the tiger and cash him in because they know that a dead tiger is worth a lot of money. So the only thing she can think of is... Thing, thing she wants to do is save him, of course, from these bad people. And she takes him deep into the forest where she found him years before, or one year before, actually. And hopefully he will stay there and be a wild tiger. So that was the uh, the idea that I had. And uh, But because I'm not a story person, uh, I asked uh, a friend or actually two friends for help to flesh this simple idea out. And we did. We fleshed it out. And uh, now it's a half-hour dramatic film, and uh, I'm really, really proud of it. And, um, yeah, so far, Brizio is doing the scoring, but uh, also uh, I'm super, super lucky and blessed that I have a Richard Sherman song in it Mm -hmm. uh, because when I told the story of the film to Richard Sherman a few years ago, uh, I I just got got gotten started with the storyboarding, and he was really excited about the idea And offered to write a song, so that's the the important musical centerpiece of the film is Richard's song.
0: Oh, that's this sounds wonderful, and so happy that you're continuing hand drawn animation because, well, for a lot of us, you know, as as amazing as computer graphic, you know, computer animation is, there's there's a warmth and a texture and an emotion. Uh, about hand-drawn animation that I think it's still hard for computer animation to fully capture.
2: Yeah, they're kind of apples and and oranges. I mean, both mediums are about storytelling, of course. Both are about acting. But there's something about um, something a bit more individual. Uh, When you see drawn animation, you see the artist's hand on the screen, basically. You can't really see that in computer animation which has of course its own strengths you know with computer animation you can take the camera and move around the room and in and out and you can do all these spectacular vista shots uh, that you can do not as easily in 2d animation but um, so they all have their, their strengths and uh, uh, but there's no reason why there shouldn't be any more hand-drawn films so that was my theory so I, I'm 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 on it. I'm on it, and we'll deliver next year.
0: Excellent. And you mentioned you had a blog. Is is this something that we can sort of follow the progress of Mushka and your other projects you're working on, and and find out like when it's being released?
2: Absolutely. Uh, The the blog is sort of a love letter to Disney animation, to classic Disney animation projects that I was a part of, characters I was a part of, and also. On, on my film. So it's like a mix of all these things. And I've been blogging actually for close to eight years now. And I blog regularly, like two or three times a week at least. Mm-hmm. And, um, the blog is called deja view. So Deja that would be my last name, D E J A and view as in vista, you know? So that's the name of the blog deja view. And if people want to find that and, uh, look it up, there are years and years of, uh, blog post there and there's some beautiful original art that you won't find anywhere else character drawings uh backgrounds concept art uh, i posted my my pencil test from lion king from um, aladdin and all this so rare stuff
0: excellent well we will definitely have a link to your blog in our show notes so folks can check it out. So thank you. Well, Andreas, thank you for continuing the legacy of Walt Disney and his artists through your own work and for sharing the artistry of Mickey Mouse you know, at the Walt Disney Family Museum at the exhibition Mickey Mouse from Walt to the World. And thank you for taking the time to be with us and connecting with Walt.
2: Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Okay.
0: Well, Craig, that was time. Ta- it's now time for us to talk about this week in Disney history, and I, I don't have anything about animation, you know, in yeah. this week in Disney history because we're still we still have our theme, uh, uh, our summer theme of the theme parks. So what we're going to do is is see what was going on in the theme parks for this coming week, the week of. July
1: 28th. So are you all set I, to walk through the parks? I'll, I'll do my best. No promises.
0: Great. All right. Well, let's begin with July 28th. Retired astronaut Buzz Aldrin, of course of the famous Apollo 11 crew and the second man to walk on the moon just celebrated the 50th anniversary of that amazing event. Um, He took controls of which Walt Disney World attraction on July 28,
1: 2003. That would have to be Mission Space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Of course, that's at Epcot. And this well, he did this during the filming of an ABC television segment that featured the new attraction. Uh, this segment was ultimately shown on August fifteenth, two 2003 on, of course, the ABC television network during their airing of the feature film Mission to Mars.
1: Hmm. So, In my opinion, it, an underrated movie.
0: Mm-hmm i saw that when it first came out but i don't have any strong memories of it
1: yeah it's uh i mean it got an all-star cast gary sinise tim robbins don Cheadle. like mm-hmm. it's so it's stacked in that realm uh it's pretty ridiculous at the end once they uh once they they meet the aliens and such but
0: oh you know marvin the martian you <laughs> know that, <with> that crossover <laughs> with um warner brothers yeah that's that'll be the day <laughs> Sort of like, you know, it was like Roger Rabbit, you know. They had Marvin the Martian. Yeah,
1: but on a (laughs) completely separate subject, like, uh, it's been like two months now or a month when they released the stills for the new Bugs Bunny shorts that they're making, and it looked beautiful.
0: It did. It's much truer to the Bugs Bunny we know uh, as compared to the current Mickey Mouse shorts. Yes. That are not true. To the Mickey Mouse we know, I thought it was interesting. Whereas you know, I how there's so much pushing the you know the current version of Mickey Mouse that's going to be in Runaway Train and is on you know the Disney Channel is you know the Disneyland monorails. And you've talked about this, I'm sure, on the Disneyland show. Um, I, I just can't remember. You know, they have the wraps now of the Disney characters on the mm-hmm. monorail. They're the traditional. Versions yeah. of the characters—they're not the new
1: ones—and I thought they
0: probably knew
1: better. Yeah, you but know, then, yeah, <laughs> at heart park, you walked up and down Main Street, and they were on the banners.
0: Yeah, so, well, what can you do? You Those can't banners every come down. No, I think it's just confusing. They need to be consistent and stick with the the true original.
1: Totally agree with you.
0: Yeah. Anyway, all right. July twenty ninth, a special invitation only party is held on July twenty ninth, nineteen ninety nine, to celebrate the debut of which Walt Disney World attraction?
1: Hmm. I. It's going to be a wild guess on it, but I, I know that Rock and Roller Coaster opened up in nineteen ninety nine.
0: That's correct. Starring Aerosmith at the Disney MGM Studios. This, of course, is an enclosed steel roller coaster. It is located at the end of Sunset Boulevard and invited guests retreated to an all-you-care-to-eat buffet and bar. And a chance to ride the roller coaster with a member of Aerosmith, who are the guests of honor. So, I'm not too sure how that worked because what was was there like one band member on each team? train
1: so if you were in the back <laughs> anyway now i'm assuming that uh we didn't find out about this until now but in fact uh steven tyler has been cloned multiple times the real steven <laughs> tyler died 30 years ago and uh yeah. they were just they, they've they got a room full of steven tyler's they just pull them out for for appearances and in this case they 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 just kept putting him in every single row, and no one questioned it. That
0: would make sense. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so Rock and Roller Coaster will officially open to the public the following day. So I remember when they were thinking this was going to be rethemed to the Jonas Brothers.
1: I remember that too. So uh, <laughs> and, and now they have made a comeback. So see, it would have been it would have been current again. Yeah, but <laughs> it's at the same time no. <laughs> there, I feel like there's a specific style of music where, uh, where some bands sang about st- when they were like really young and very immature in a way. They sang songs that that seemed a little strange and a little creepy, and like they wouldn't. They wouldn't age well. And to me, I didn't really listen to Jonas Brothers, but a couple of the songs I've heard, I feel like that's it. Like it was weird when they're singing them as a bunch of teenagers. And now that they're older, 10 years older, it's like, oh, if you're still singing these songs another 20 years from now, things are going to be very weird. But no, I'm not familiar with their tunes that much. They have nice voices, though. Yeah,
0: Nick's not bad. Alrighty, July 30th. A free exhibit opened in Disneyland's Frontierland on July 30th, 1956, and will remain open until 1963. What is the name of the exhibit?
1: You're going to have to just give this one to me because I know there was so much coming and going and changing in Frontierland during that time.
0: And this is one we talked about that you wished you could have been at and own and purchased something from. It was operated by Ultraviolet Products. The Mineral Hall oh, features yeah. yeah, a free exhibit, which includes a mineral display lit by blacklight.
1: You're not wrong. I, I do wish I had something from it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, you could buy little um, blacklight kits there because blacklight was was unusual back in those days. You couldn't go to the hardware store and get it, so they had tiny little kits that you could buy and yeah. put together, and then you could get your your little minerals there as well, and have your own little mineral hall in your room.
1: Oh, I'm ready for blacklight to make a comeback. So, <laughs> I had my my blacklight poster in my my bedroom when I was. Growing up,
0: what, what was it a poster of? Oh, Pink Floyd. Oh, okay. Sometimes
1: maybe the Aerosmith and <laughs> like Rock and Roller Coaster so much. I did enjoy <laughs> Rock and Roller Coaster, and they were my gateway to Aerosmith. But no, no, I had that. I had one of the awesome felt posters that was from Pink Floyd's The Wall, and then all the black light colors on it, and and it's no wonder that my parents suspected that I might. Uh, be doing stuff that's harmful for my body at a young age, but really (laughs) I just like the music.
0: (laughs) That's funny. Okay. All right. July 31st, Bob Penfield put in his final day of work at Disneyland on July 31st, 1997. What fact made this noteworthy? Um...
1: I'm not exactly positive on this. I actually haven't heard this story before.
0: He was the last of the original Disneyland cast members. He oh, wow. began working at Disneyland on July 13th, 1955, when he was 18 years old. Bob's first job at Disneyland was as a ride operator on the King Arthur Carousel in Fantasyland for three days. Then he moved over to become foreman of Snow White's Scary Adventure. In the mid-50s, he was promoted to operations supervisor, and then he got loaned out to work at the 1960 Winter Olympics on construction projects for the New York World's Fair and the development of Walt Disney World and Tokyo Disneyland. He retired as a construction field superintendent. To commemorate his retirement, Bob was honored the following day with a window on Main Street that displays the inscription club fifty five School of Golf Bob Penfield instructor
1: hmm. yeah I, I I feel terrible for never uh, really learning about him, but that's just one that slipped through the cracks I guess
0: yeah, yeah, so monumentous day there yes
1: Okay, so, August 1st,
0: which Walt Disney World Resort opened on August 1st,
1: 2014? 2014. um, Wow, you, you got me there. I can't think of what's opened up since... I mean, I know stuff like... Stuff like the Polynesian DVC and Grand Floridian DVC have opened up and now Grandestino, but I can't. The last full resort to open up was Art of Animation, and that was before I worked for the Diz, so. This must be a a trick question of sorts, because I'm kind Mm. of. It is uh, probably of sorts, it is. The Four Seasons Resort, Orlando. Oh, yep. See, I. I mean technically it is on Disney property
0: uh-huh yeah but, yeah. yeah it opened with a ribbon cutting ceremony attended by Mickey Mouse the new resort is one of the largest in the global four seasons portfolio at 443 rooms including 68 suites one with nine bedrooms hey the the whole diz team could stay there that
1: sounds like my greatest nightmare <laughs>
0: With a dedicated Disney planning center in its lobby,
1: the Luxury Hotel
0: also offers character breakfasts. Or at least it did when it opened.
1: Yeah, it, it still does. Does it, it As far as I know. Um, I've, I've actually only been over there once. So it's a beautiful hotel, but, uh, you know, I, much like Mickey, uh, unless they invite me there, I don't have the money to, to stay.
0: Yeah. I've only been there once, and that was for a meal. Okay, on August 2nd, 1989, the Walt Disney Company announced plans to double the size of the entertainment area of which Disney theme park over three years?
1: I'm going to go ahead and assume that that would be uh, Hollywood Studios.
0: Yeah, yeah, Disney MGM Studios at the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Okay. All right, and finally, on August 3rd, 2006. It is reported that Walt Disney World will reimagine the Magic Kingdom's daily parade. The Share a Dream Come True parade will lose its snow globes, be given a new soundtrack, and be renamed. What will be the new name of this parade?
1: Oh, God. Um, I'm going to be entirely honest. I thought it was still Share a Dreams Come True when share a dream come true when it got replaced by festival of fantasy At yeah, least and that's it, what i kept calling it <laughs> you're you
0: you know what? you're you're very i'm sure that's what everybody called it yeah. because they really didn't think outside the box here it's the disney dreams come true parade I, there you go i yeah that I, was
1: it <laughs> slightly embarrassed <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah it's it's not like it changed all that much, yeah. But um, it's,
1: it's arguably, there was no need for the change. <laughs>
0: no, not really. So, except people probably thought, "Oh, look, no snow globes." It's yeah, probably, and I think those snow globes got started at Disneyland and went up and down Main Street for a little while, and then they they crossed the country. And
1: you guys had them a long time. Yeah, well, and now that you're talking about it, somewhere. Someone's hearing it, and we're gonna see them reappear from out of the abyss.
0: Yeah, yeah, maybe they're in that that magical um, warehouse that we saw in the last commercial for the Main Street Electrical Parade at
1: Disneyland. You know what? I While would not be surprised. <laughs> it's you're you're probably right. They're probably in the back there, and someone eventually will will pick it out, or they'll Photoshop it. One or the other, but no no right. ways are maybe bad they're way.
0: using. They're using one as a big
1: fishbowl for our old sea serpent from a yeah. submarine voyage. Yeah, Swimming around in there. I mean, they've got to they have somewhere to swim. <laughs> well, not bad. Not yeah, bad. very good. I've had better. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, uh, Craig, I've been fortunate to have heard Andreas speak several times, and I, I'm always touched by his enthusiasm and passion for his work, and his passion for the legacy of Walt Disney and his animators. He's also very entertaining during a live presentation, and he's quite funny. It's a very, uh, sort of a very sardonic sense of humor, very dry, but it's, it's good. So, okay. uh, um, it's... But, but, you know, it's hard to convey with just words what really a, a spectacular exhibition this is. There are works of art and displays that may never be publicly on view again, at least not all in one place. Like this is. So I can't recommend Walt Disney from Walt to the World highly enough. I think this is a must see for those who appreciate the art of animation, the history of Walt Disney and his animators, and Mickey
1: Mouse, which is pretty much everyone listening. (laughs) Yeah. And if not, then, I mean, well, thanks for still listening <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. well, the exhibition runs through January 6th 2020 at the Walt Disney Family Museum in the Presidio of San Francisco and if you visit perhaps I'll see you there so Craig until next time how can our listeners connect with you
1: as always, you can find me on a random assortment of Diz shows, Diz Unplug shows. But uh, if you want to connect with me faster, uh, always on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter,
0: I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Check out the one with the Connecting with Walt banner. Uh, Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling, the Diz, And you can connect with me and Craig on the official Connecting with Walt Twitter page at ConnectingWalt. Be sure to look for my Disneyland history segments on the Diz Unplugged podcast um, Disneyland show and Craig always has a link to that in our show notes if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disneyunplug.com. and again the link is in our show notes and look for past episodes of connecting with walt on itunes where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings thank you for making us a part of your day and remember i only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man walt disney and his brother roy